Hey, y'all. Welcome back to the Bitcoin Podcast, episode number 296. Uh, today, we're going to jump right into the interview because the interview went really long, uh, really good about dark neck markets, all kinds of things. Really enjoyed it. So without further ado, let's just hop into the interview, enjoy it, and uh, here we go. Hey, hey, everyone. You know what time it is. Because I just said the thing that I say before it's the time for an interview. That means it's interview time. And uh, we have, I think this is going to be a pretty juicy interview. You know, juicy like a, I don't know, medium rare steak. <laughs> Not juicy like an apple. I don't know what that means, but juice nonetheless. Today, we are, uh, we have a guest <laughs> by the name of Cedric Dahl. He wanted he he is a, a regular guy in the right place at the right time, surrounded by great people. And he's been lucky a few times in, in the crypto crypto sphere. Corey, do we call it crypto sphere, crypto space? Crypto industry. Who knows? Crypto can, call it what you want. Call it, let's call it the cryptoverse. Cedric, what, what do you like calling it? What do you what do you call this whole entire muckety muck? The weird world of internet money. All right. The weird world of internet money. So we're just going to dive right into it, Cedric. First question, why 1,000x and not 10,000x? I feel like you missed an opportunity. Definitely. Um, you know, we're going to have to we're going to have to go back to the drawing board on that one. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know what it was? It was this story about this this guy named Ron Conway, who was one of the first investors into Google. And there's like this lore around Silicon Valley, you know, who got the biggest treasure, right, from investing. And uh, the big story for him was, you know, dollar in, thousand dollars out, thousand X return. That that to me seemed pretty crazy. Um, and I like crazy. I like things that no one else is willing to consider. And in a lot of ways, I think that's the story of a lot of people who got early into Bitcoin because you hear about it, you try to tell all of your friends, anyone who will listen, a lot of people say you're crazy, and then history decides who was right. And I like that. I like that a lot. And so I, you know, I've been kind of obsessed since kind of accidentally falling into crypto, right place, right time, right friends. Um, and then it happened a few times, and I was like, you know what? I really like this idea of being super contrarian. So I wanted to, I wanted to have a research group. I was really inspired by Elon Musk, what he did to figure out that rockets could land themselves. And so I was like, man, he just like surrounded himself with all the, the crazy smartest people in rockets until somebody made that offhand remark, you know, Elon, 
It'd be a lot cheaper if you could land the rockets. So what does Elon say? Why can't you? And you know, SpaceX is born. And so I, I wanted to do the same thing and I wanted to find, I wanted to hunt for investments that were obscene, that you can't talk about without people being like, ah, screw that guy, he's crazy. Now nah, he'd like, that's impossible. And I like that. I like looking in places where no one else is either willing or able to look. And humans have a lot of biases. You know, there's a lot of stuff that makes us put blinders on, whether it was the financial crisis, 2007, you know, the cascading events that led to like the Cyprian financial crisis where governments reached into bank accounts. There's all these events in human history where if you could just take your blinders off, you could avoid the negative, benefit from the positive. And yeah, like a lot of what I do is inspired by that idea of being right first in a huge way, even if everyone thinks you're crazy. All right. Now we're going to go into some of what, um, we can we can call your your successful moments. Then we're probably going to go into what you think is right right now, judging by what we've talked about before this episode. But I don't want to just celebrate all the successful things you've done. What like what's a screw up you've had? Because like people think you're crazy. Oh if God. you're looking for crazy, like if you're looking for things that yeah. are crazy, you're bound to hit some screw ups. You can't be right all the time. Tell us about one of those. Yeah, Corey, I've made basically every mistake that you can make in internet money, like all of them. Uh, mining mining crypto is a terrible idea. Unless you're a professional data center operator who loves operational security, you should just never have anything to do with mining crypto. Mining crypto is terrible. Uh, so that was a big one. I lost seven Bitcoin when I had a laptop uh, that had, you know, the early Bitcoin QT. That's like the early Bitcoin wallet. Yeah. I left my I left my laptop on an airplane. Uh, you know, I think it was a Delta airline walked out of the gangway, realized I'd left it, turned back around and the laptop was gone. And, you know, luckily I had some tracking software on it. I was able to like deduce who took it, got it, like found it, recovered it, ran all the backups on it, but I could not get that dat file back. You know, the, the file that like- Yeah, wallet.dat. You know, helps you figure out how, uh, yeah, how to get your coins back. So lost a bunch of Bitcoin that way. Um, a friend of mine ran a t-shirt company that sold Bitcoin t-shirts. And I spent way too much Bitcoin on those Bitcoin t-shirts. I have, I've done all the dumb and all the dumb <laughs> that you can imagine in crypto. I've done it all. <laughs> There's a lot of dumb to be done in crypto. Did you ever put your private keys into somebody's web browser or somebody's wow. web app? Uh, thankfully I have had very paranoid friends who have helped me avoid that one, but I've made just about every other mistake. All right, good. Because that's that's what gets new people most of the time. They're like, yeah. wait, this this website says it can give me five times my money if I put my private key in there. Let me just go right ahead and no nope, lose my money. And that's pretty much exactly how that goes. So yeah, I would say that like that. a good portion of um, those have been around for a, a decent amount of time. Like we we may seem knowledgeable now, but like we've done we've like I can't name the amount of dumb things that I've done with this technology as it's grown, as I'm playing with different things, trying to like, and I get greedy in various different ways in terms of like, oh, this is the thing. I figured it out. I got the thing. I'm going to try this. And it's like, oh, that was a scam. Oh, shit. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking about this morning, actually. Like I, I was I was thinking about Dilbert. So my, my girlfriend talks, she, she refers to me as Indiana Jones meets Dilbert. Uh, Quality. Tell me how you really feel, right? Yeah. So, you know, I was thinking about the guy who created Dilbert, Scott Adams. And when you hear his story, I think his book is called like How to Fail in Every Way But Still Win Big. Uh, he talks about like just the the corpses 
a failure around his one success that is Dilbert. And I, I think that's probably true of anybody who has experienced any successes. There's just like so many failures that just kind of like slightly nudge them to try different things until something worked out. Absolutely. That's actually, that's, that's, that's good advice to anyone listening. Uh, you know, failure is uh, definitely not the end of something. You just kind of learn and adapt and go into something new. And, um, but I, I kind of want to turn the tide of the convo just a little bit because we kind of got ahead of ourselves. We didn't even talk about what 1000X is or what it does. And then we had all these topics we wanted to talk about, like dark markets, and we haven't even started to, to build that trail. So maybe let's rewind it. And, and what is 1000X and what do you guys do? Sure. So I lead research at the 1000X group. It's like my day job today. Uh, basically, we study crypto adoption. You know, there's a lot of stories, a lot of narratives, a lot of crypto cults saying this thing is the future. Um, I like data. And so, you know, for the last 10 years, I have been obsessed with two things, uh, technology investing and crypto. And they kind of happened at the same time. So 2009, right place, right time. My friend who's really into applied cryptography, Bennett, amazing guy, like brother from another mother, bestie. He sits me down. And he's like, Cedric. Bitcoin. I just read this thing. We got to pay attention to it. So I'm like, what? what? I don't I can't read this. This white paper's too long. It's I can't understand what it's saying. For a week, he explains every single part of it to me. I finally kind of understand it. And I'm like, internet money? Who, who wants that? This is stupid. I, I completely wrote it off. And uh, you know, every every month or so, he would nudge me until about a year later. Maybe it's two years later. It's hard to know the exact date. He's like, Cedric, people are starting to use drugs. They're, they're starting to use Bitcoin to buy <laughs> drugs on, on, the, on the dark net. I'm like, what? What's the dark net? So, you know, he taught me how to like use it. And I was really attuned to looking for something like Bitcoin because my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. And so like that was the moment for me. I was like, oh, like, OK, people, groups, even other governments could do stuff that other people with guns didn't want them to do. Like, I really want to pay attention to this. So I, I was paying attention to this. I'm giving you a long story, a short question. I hope that's okay. Enjoy. Go ahead. Um, so, you know, so like I started to get it. Now, as I started to get it, uh, Bennett and I were doing this interview for this technology incubator called Y Combinator. Uh, Bennett and I had just recently done a, like a big data analytics startup way before that was a thing. I think it was like 2009, 2010. Uh, and so we had like, you know, we had a little bit of resources. So we started this hacker house and it just gave Bennett the time to kind of go deep into this subject. And so anyway, we, we were doing a lot of things. One of these things was like a podcast app that, you know, Y Combinator invited us out to go like tell them about. So we go out there. They're like, no, we don't like your idea. We're not going to fund you. And, you know, we're like, oh, well, we're already out here in Silicon Valley. Let's just stay here. And so we rented a couch, two couches, actually. Uh, in a communal nerd mansion called the Rainbow Mansion in uh, Silicon Valley, uh, in Cupertino specifically. There's a bunch of Apple and NASA people. And uh, I noticed that every time Bennett talked to people about Bitcoin, like everybody's eyes lit up. And Bennett was like, he was like the star of the show. I mean, he could just explain Bitcoin and why it was important so well. And more and more smart people started inviting him to, you know, what they called salons, just dinner parties. And um, I was like, wow, like something's happening. I don't understand it, but like, let me hold on to Bennett's coattails. 
And so before we knew it, you know, Bennett was like kind of becoming a local celebrity explaining Bitcoin in 2010, 2011. And I, I was just desperate to provide any value I could. So I was like, Ben, how can I help? And he's like, well, it's really hard to buy and sell this stuff. Maybe you can help people do that. So I started doing that. I was the guy who like figured out how to use Mt. Gox in the early days. I mean, really early days. And, uh, you know, I started helping tech founders do that. They introduced me to angel investors, started helping them do that. Then I started helping venture capitalists do that. Before we knew it, you know, one of these VCs was like, you and Bennett look like a team. Can I give you guys money to do this at scale? And we're like, uh, sure, we'll take your money. So we had no idea what we were doing. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're totally clueless, by the way. Like, real talk, no idea what we're doing. Right place, right time. So we, we end up raising money from like Google Ventures and Y Combinator and all these other people. Um, our second Y Combinator experience was completely different. The first time we just like bounced off, off the interview, you know, and the second time we just got ushered in. It was a breeze. Um, and, you know, the thing about Silicon Valley is it, it's very much like a herd mentality kind of thing. So when one person says yes, just like the lemmings descend. You know, oh, they did it. We're doing it too. Like. <laughs> yeah. A lot of FOMO in the valley. So, so we're in this really weird position now, right? Where, wow, we've just raised like a couple million bucks. We've got no idea what we're doing and we're supposed to like bring Bitcoin to the United States. What? So fast forward, um, you know, we basically learned everything about normal fiat money. I knew very little before this. We learned everything about crypto because there's no take backs in crypto. It's just like once the, the, the transaction's done, it's done forever. So we had to learn about that in terms of like network security, because if you get hacked, you know, it's over. Um, and we basically learned everything you could possibly learn about what you could do legally in crypto. You know, we ended up starting, I think, probably the first crypto hedge fund just to make the markets on our exchange. Um, we have done mining at scale. We've, you know, we, we ran this regulated Bitcoin exchange. And, uh, you know, the timing just did not work out for us. The day we went to go raise our Series A, uh, Coinbase announced something like a 70 or $80 million round. I think at that point that brought their like war chest to $120 million. And, you know, all of the oxygen was sucked out of the room. And so we're like, ah, oh, man, like we had to kill it. Like our baby got killed. Like it, it was that the project was dead. Right. So that was the end of the like the first part of like our real learning about making a crypto service in the wild so i took the, t the next two years to like travel and make travel videos that nobody cared about besides my mom and then hmm. one day a friend like asked you know a crypto question i answered and then like another friend asked the same question this kept happening so i was like i'm just going to record private youtube videos put them out there and just stop having to repeat myself so i was sending these private videos out and they started getting like tens of views and that hundreds of views and thousands of views. So I made them public and I got this like flood of people who were like interested in what I had to say. Um, and then we're like, Oh wow. Like, could we use this to like sponsor research somehow in the space? Because having been in, you know, technology investing for, you know, since gosh, like I guess 2012, 2013, you have to become a technology historian to understand like how to convince these VCs to give you money. And in doing so, you study the biggest winners. You study the Ron Conways. You study the very few people who have made these like thousand X or larger returns because that's really all VCs care about. They make lots of bets. They expect most of them to die, but they expect one or two investments from each portfolio to just be gigantic. 
And so I was really inspired by that. I had spent a couple of years obsessing about how to understand that and how to tell that story. And so I was like, okay, you know, we stumbled into Bitcoin. We hired some smart folks to help us understand Ethereum and get into the pre-sale there. We, we were just, we had the right setup to study Monero before it was called Monero. And we're like, I wonder if, if we can keep doing this. And so, like I said earlier, I was really inspired by Elon Musk and how he would just surround himself with these experts. And so I was like, all right, let's, let's try to build a little think tank and just, you know, crowdsource building these tools. So today, you know, we give away our thesis for free. We're like, this is what we believe. Invest in adoption, invest in what venture capitalists, the most successful investors in the history of tech investing do. Study adoption, you know, try to invest in things to solve a real hair on fire problem that have network effects meaning they become more valuable and more defensible with every new user. And uh, these things have to capture value. They can't be free projects like um, TCPIP, the backbone of the internet, provides tremendous value, captures none of it. And so based on this really simple thesis, we just track real adoption. And so really the question is, and I think this will like lead into the rest of our conversation is like, okay, what do you track adoption in crypto? And I'll tell you what, it's not, it's not the price. That's what's called a lagging indicator. And it's not the volume on exchanges. Um, really what it is, is like, where does crypto solve a problem that no other technology can solve this problem? And the answer, the conclusion was what got me into it in the beginning, which is the darknet. The darknet is the only place that I can think of where crypto has a unique superpower, and that is censorship resistance. So I study the adoption of censorship resistant technologies applied cryptography what a lot of people call crypto or internet money but really that's that's the only place that it really makes sense and so hmm. I, I study every everything I, I try to be coin agnostic um, and the, the things that I found while going to the darknet really surprised me and I, I don't mean to like lead the conversation so you know feel free to pause me at any moment but I, I've been really surprised by by all of the things we found on the darknet um, and the, the conclusions that we've come to are, are a bit of a head scratcher. And I think it's the like what's happening on the darknet, in my opinion, is the only reliable leading indicator for what's happening with crypto. And it's a story that everyone should be talking about because it affects all of us, mm -hmm. um, because how we money is how we coordinate. Right. And if the way we coordinate is starting to change, if, if you look at the, the adoption of the censorship resistant technology, it's growing. And it's not just growing with individuals like you and I. It's not just growing with organizations. It, it seems like governments are starting to legitimately use the darknet to affect what's happening inside of their countries. Okay, I got so. Go ahead, Dave. Go ahead, Gordon. All right, I, I'm gonna go. Cool. Uh, now you started that whole thing with you like data the most. Data is what drives you, right? That's what that's what usually like your key indicators for movement or making decisions is usually on data and. When you, whenever you pull insights from some corpus of data, it has to be good. So darknet isn't necessarily the easiest place to pull quality data from. How are you doing this? What metrics yeah. are you using? Like, you know what I mean? Like, how are you collecting the data to then get something you can, you can make some type of insight or decision on? Because uh, from there, we can go on and like, okay, cool. What does this tell you? What does it mean? How does it drive uh, decisions? Yeah, well, the truth is it's really terribly difficult to get data on the darknet. So what we do is we hire a team of mechanical Turks. Yes. So these are, they're kind of like human computers. Yeah, you like, you tell them, hey, follow these instructions. And then you, you know, collect the data and you secretly on the side have another team doing the same thing. And you try to find where the overlap is to get some kind of like quality sense of how good the data is, right? 
So from there, like what you do is you're like, okay, well, what are the things that you can objectively measure? And so the simplest, most straightforward thing to measure is what crypto is being accepted by vendors, right? So that, that is the easiest information to collect. So right now we measure 12 active darknet markets. By the way, they get shut down all the time. Uh, the majority of shutdowns happen because of um, voluntary or exit scams. So the founders are, of a darknet market will either say, this is too hard, I'm out, or they'll say, I'm out and I'm taking all the money. It's actually a very small portion of the darknet markets that are shut down by police. So we, we, we're measuring these things about every two weeks, and there's massive chaos on the darknet. The only thing that has been consistent is the dominant crypto. And I have been very shocked about the dominant crypto. I thought it was going to be a privacy coin. I was expecting Monero. You know, we started the, the darknet research about two years ago. And the first thing we found was that Bitcoin two years ago was dominant. About 70% of vendors accepted Bitcoin. And then the rest was a combination of Litecoin, Ethereum, Monero. Now, what's happened in 2019 is just huge changes. Giant closures, you know, like one of the biggest markets, Silk Road 3, shuts down, comes back up, basically removed all the altcoins. Now it's Bitcoin only. So today, of the 12 darknet markets that we're looking at, uh, seven are Bitcoin only, right? Only. Then you've got four that accept altcoins and one that is Monero only. And so there, there are almost none of the privacy coins you'd expect. There, there's no Zcash that we can see. There's no Dash that we can see. Um, there's no Mimblewimble implementations. Like there's no Grin, there's no Beam. You know, these are all the things I was expecting to see. And I've been tracking this for two years. So I'm like, okay, when is Mimblewimble going to come on here? And it's not on there. And so, you know, the, 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 the really weird thing about this is that, you know, if you look at this idea in technology investing, which is called a long tail distribution, the, the idea is that first place is generally a, whether our network effects is generally a very strong first place. Second place is a distant second. And then third and fourth and the others like really are minuscule. And so if you believe that the dark net is a leading indicator for crypto adoption more broadly, and it would lead you to believe that like Bitcoin is the dominant crypto by far in terms of like real practical use. Mm. That's very interesting. I would think that there's like so many other currencies they would want to use to avoid the fact that Bitcoin may not be the best currency you want to use if you're doing dirt. I mean, yes. why yeah, well, that's think that is? I'm just so intrigued. There's a few like, things I, here, right? Yeah. There's like one I listened to uh, just to, to preface, like I listened to your interview with uh, what Bitcoin did, Peter McCormick, outstanding episode. Anyone listening to this should go and listen to that one in case um, we don't talk about something he talks about there. It's, it's great. Um, and we'll get to the, the next point on why they're using Bitcoin and not others. But something that didn't get talked about there, which I thought was maybe a different, uh, at least at least. Um, a contributing thing is the tools that are available to the different cryptos for accepting and sending. Um, those who are using the darknet market are not necessarily technically savvy. They know enough to get on the market. They're, they have some type of motivating driver. It's not crypto adoption, right? And so they're going to use the available tools in order to um, facilitate what they're trying to do, which is something usually... Um, censored by wherever their jurisdiction are jurisdiction is that comes in the form typically in terms of browser extensions or scanning qr codes with some app right like you have to send this asset somehow 
And the availability of those browser extensions, especially um, for darknet markets, is relatively limited and not very trustworthy. Could that be like a contributing factor to why only markets, like only uh, some markets, accept only Bitcoin because it's just more tried and true, and they can't trust anything else. And and the developers of those specific coins are not developing darknet market browser extensions and wallets. Yeah, I think that's that that's correct, and I think that explains a, a very big chunk of why Bitcoin basically is winning, or you some people would say have won the dark market. Yeah. Um, there's just so much more plumbing, right? When I say plumbing, I mean, there's so much more work that has been done and so much adoption has been done across uh, speculation. So exchanges, for example, Bitcoin's just by far the most liquid of all the cryptos. Yeah, the second place no isn't even remotely close. Yeah. So after you look at the speculator network effect, let's look at the developer network effect. I mean, when you think about darknet operators, Bitcoin was the first, right? It was the mm -hmm. first darknet currency. And so people have gotten a lot of practice integrating Bitcoin into their darknet flow. And not only that, but it's, there's like a feedback mechanism, right? And then you've got the users, the people actually like using the darknet, and they start using the darknet in, what was it? I think 2011, the Silk Road launched. So you've got, you know, people expecting Bitcoin. They get used to buying Bitcoin, using Bitcoin. And even though it's not anonymous, it's like pseudonymous, um, and the privacy isn't really that good. There have been there have been technologies that have gotten better and better and better at preserving the privacy of where those coins have been, where those coins are going, and then eventually you had this coin join thing come out, which like really gives you pretty good or at least good enough privacy. And uh, it looks like, from as much as we could track, um, that coin join has really become like the dominant way to have private technologies being facilitated. So it's, I think it's a combination of all of that plumbing that just made Bitcoin good enough. Where, where vendors are like, look, I think most of my clients will be able to get Bitcoin easily. They'll be able to use it easily. They'll be able to pay me easily. I'll be able to convert that Bitcoin into cash easily. You know, the plumbing is all there. I think that's really at the end of the day why Bitcoin won. It was first and it was good enough. Mm, that's powerful. Man, I don't I hate to like pre-book you, but I would love to have like a second part of this where it was us and Yaya, Corey. I've actually um when y'all contacted me, I, I contacted Yaya. I I I've worked with government contracting agencies, particularly um on the side of illicit finance. Um I was never I never had a clearance, but I know a lot of people who do. And it's one of those situations like like that's that's what that's all they look at. That's the only thing they care about. Right? Yeah. If, if any any government especially in terms of an illicit finance part, only cares about basically dark markets and crypto. And how, how, how do you track it? And, and with the invention of uh, various like technologies like CoinJoin, it's becoming a incredibly difficult battle on their side. And, and, and the way things are progressing in terms of the technology, um, the, the people are going to win in terms of it's going to become more and more difficult to track this type of stuff with any real... Um, confidence interval that you'd like. And, that, and, you're, and you're probably seeing this when you try and pull metrics, right? Like we talked about this right before, um, like a week ago or so before we had the show and I was looking at some of the material and it's like, yeah, I see that like one of the metrics you can get, which is an obvious thing obvious thing to get is what, what markets are offering to accept, which is a great indicator for like 
what they're willing to do, what they're willing to take and what they're, what they're using. Um, but something that doesn't help you really track adoption is what volumes these things have relative, right? So you can't see like, um, the amount of money that's flowing into the dark market over time, which gives you a tremendous indicator for adoption, but like, there's no way you're going to get that. And so like, yeah, there, there, go ahead. Yeah. There used to be an analog. Um, so when I say analog, I mean, there used to be a way to get a general idea, mm -hmm, like a proxy. But it's, it's, it's disappeared. Yeah. As of just a couple of days ago. So, uh, in technology, there's this phenomenon that we refer to briefly called a network effect, right? The, the network becomes more valuable, the more people use it. So, uh, you know, th there used to be these things called mixers where you go to this mixer, you send in your coins, you get sort of like a combination of other people's coins back. Uh, the problem is these things were God awful. They, they were basically ineffective. Yeah. So then there was this coin join idea that was proposed by one of the OGs in Bitcoin. And, uh, you know, a, co a couple of different people actually went out and built it. But the, the thing about this that I don't think people really appreciate is that there is a very strong network effect inside of coin join, meaning the more participants in a coin join, the better it is. And so because of this, there is a like runaway feedback loop where the first place coin join basically gets almost all of the coin joins like on the internet. And so that is Wasabi. So the cool thing about Wasabi is it was really easy to reverse engineer. The way you do it is you look at this thing called a coordinator address. That's how they get paid, right? So uh, inside of the coin join, they are coordinating it. They have a coordinator address. You just look at all the different transactions flowing through there. And it's really easy to get a sense of how this stuff is growing. And we, we were tracking it for, God, I think maybe eight months before they, a few days ago, turned off a persistent coordinator address and replaced it with fresh coordinator addresses each time. So for eight months, we got this insane amount of data. It was just beautiful. And the the things that we were seeing between like giant explosions in coin joins happening and announcements being made by sanctioned countries that they were setting up crypto infrastructure. I mean, like we were seeing some really interesting stuff. Now it's hard to like directly connect the dots. There isn't like a straight line, but you could say there's a dotted line. There's something that makes you pay attention. And unfortunately, that has gone away. We don't know how to track coin joins as of a few days ago, but the data we have is is worth looking into. And like, for example, the, the craziest thing I saw was in, uh, I believe it was August of 2019, we saw a 250% increase, a two and a half X increase uh, in the monthly number of coin joins. And coin join had already been growing at like a crazy rate. You know, I'm, we're talking like early Facebook startup growth rate. So we, we know that CoinJoin on Wasabi was exploding and then it exploded like massively, right? And then just a couple of weeks later, you've got sanctioned countries announcing that they're setting up crypto infrastructure. You've got, you know, uh, reports leaking that these other sanctioned countries are setting up crypto infrastructure. And it's, it's impossible to say that they are related, but man, Occam's razor, like the most obvious answer usually is the correct one. It certainly, it certainly made me pay attention. And as I've been paying attention, I'm getting more and more reports. Um, there's this service called Dark Owl. Are you familiar with Dark Owl? I am not. Mm -hmm. So, so basically, like Google downloads the internet to make it searchable. Uh, Dark Owl downloads the darknet to make it searchable. So Dark Owl is reporting that they are seeing state actors. These are not governments. A state actor influences what is happening within a country. It does not mean that they are the people with the monopoly on violence not to 
aggravate the men with guns, not to aggravate any government. You just want to use terms that people understand in simple terms. So um, what's happening is the dark net is being used to influence what is happening in countries. There is a fascinating uh, group, I guess you would call it, called Sandworm, for example. It's like this Russian collection of hackers that are like attacking infrastructure and they're, they're really like affecting the way that treasure or resources move or don't move in different countries. And if you really think about like, what is the most basic definition of a government? There's this fantastic book called a uh, dictator's, uh, what is it? A dictator's guidebook. And the way that they define government hmm. is they are the people who are responsible for the reallocation of treasure by force. And I think that you could argue that these groups that are using the dark net to either change how treasure is being moved or stop it, and they're effectively governments, right? Um, and not a lot of people are talking about this, but I think it's important to like be aware that the dark net is having a very real effect on the light economy. And when you think about you know, what happened with the last US election, as election season comes up in the United States, you know, Cambridge Analytica was the big story where you basically paid hackers to influence people to sway an election. And that may not be happening in the light economy, like Facebook's not going to do it, but I, I'll bet you a Bitcoin that you're going to find people offering that service and nation state actors looking for contractors to perform that service on the dark net. Now, it's not enough to find those state actors. What you really want to do is you want to figure out what coins they are operating in, right? And if they are proactively hoarding those coins, because there, there's some game theory that we should absolutely get into. But I, I, it's not enough to just like see the dots with dotted lines we really want to connect them and part of the reason i'm doing this is to like first of all get polite disagreement about how i might be wrong but also for people to give me any leads they can on how i might actually get hard data on nation state actors using specific cryptos and ideally data hard data that lets us figure out which crypto they are hoarding asymmetrically because if you think about it the the beginning of the game theory goes like this the most censored country the most sanctioned country that is the most disadvantaged has the largest incentive to proactively hoard the dominant crypto of the darknet so that they can do things so they can reallocate treasure to themselves and the most advantaged least sanctioned country has a very strong incentive to not adopt that crypto last and so i don't know where that inflection point is but we are somewhere in that path and so i want i want people to disagree with me and I, I want them to show me where this is wrong and if if they don't think i'm wrong help me find the data to support this mm. i'm trying to process that a little bit um i first off heavily agree with the first part of that in terms of the most sanctioned the like least free government has the incentive to hoard the most prominent cryptocurrency on the dark net so that they can move more freely. They can they can evade sanctions. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of what the other side of that coin is, uh, feels a lot more like hands off and monitor as best as possible. Um, because at this point, this so. technology is not something that um, everyone understands it moves rapidly and there are potentially uh, key faults 
with how it operates so that you can get tremendous insight on what's going on um, while that person behaves as if they think they're not being watched and they are. Mm. That's that's my a, that's my personal opinion on what what um, uh, the the other side of that coin would be doing, but I have no way to like justify any of that. I I have a comment to add, and then I also have a question: Are you not? Do you ever get concerned about your personal security just hanging out <laughs> in the dark net so much? Like, are you? Do you ever have to look over your shoulder when you when you open your car door? Like, incognito oh, mode. When you're on the dark net, you're on the menu. Like, you just have to accept that. You know, like, you got to respect the dark net operators. Like, they are the best hackers in the world. Like, seriously, like, look, here's my message to any well-intentioned regulators or any bad-intentioned hackers. You guys are in charge. Like, you're the best. You really are. And I am just a researcher who thinks that this is fascinating and I'm trying to tell this story in the most honest way that I can that aligns as many interests as possible. So if you think about it, like my story should not aggravate the, anybody operating on the dark net. It also should not aggravate any lawmakers because what I'm saying is, here's the data. If this does happen, here's how to not be disadvantaged as this transition from unfair money, which we definitely have today by many very obvious ways that you could measure it to fair money, which is what crypto is. It's just every single participant in the network has the exact same power. There's no asymmetry. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there are amazing hackers out there. I'm just a boring, ugly target. There's nothing exciting about me, you know? And so I, I try to tell the story, but also, you know, like not, uh, you know, I don't have anything flashy or fancy. I'm just a normal old researcher i do my best <laughs> to take care of security just like anybody else but um yeah you know i'd like on to the menu i'd like to try and rephrase menu. what you just said um but something that i've that it it, it, it it resonated with something that i've said um a lot in the past uh and that is like this like this stuff is fascinating like the like the the interplay of um large people using technology that's very egalitarian uh so they can do stuff they couldn't is, is fascinating, but um, the pro, like the way in which I choose to do it, because like I for, throughout the whole time, me and D have been in crypto, we've 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 received countless uh, solicitations on friends and family and coworkers and so on and so forth, saying what should I buy, what should I do, what should I invest in, and more often than not, and they, and they say, well, what do you do? And more often than not, I say, well, invest invest in your time. Like invest in your education and knowledge and, and research this stuff, figure out how it works, find things that you think are interesting and adopt the technology to it. And more often than not, like you're going to end up seeing fruit like in the pro of trying to explain it, figure it out, understand it, and then, and then like show it to others. There's going to be obvious fruit because this stuff is moving so fast in so many directions and you're particular perspective may may shine light on something that no one else is looking at and when you see that fruit you obviously pick it and eat it and that's and that's the best way to like figure out what to invest in is just figure out how it all works and that's and that's a, and in my opinion that's a lot about what you're doing you're really interested in all this stuff how this stuff works in the process of figuring this stuff out 
trying to understand like key metrics, gathering data, so on and so forth, you're like, oh, I, I see a pattern here. I'm seeing what's happening. I'm seeing large global movements. I'm seeing potentially nation states participate in the darknet to position themselves better than they could beforehand. That means X, Y, Z. And yeah. we can take I advantage think, of that. If I, I think if I, this is something that I didn't think up. I actually have a really close mutual friend with Corey and he said, and he's brilliant, brilliant person. And he doesn't really get involved with crypto, but seems like somebody who really would. But all he said was like, well, if you think down the line, Bitcoin's going to be the money for the broke. And then whatever is the fancy, shiny version of Bitcoin is going to be what's what's for the, I guess, uh, countries that are in charge, whether that be the way it is now or, uh, you know, whoever's in charge, I guess, quote unquote, superpower wise in the future is going to have some sort of cryptocurrency. It's just not going to be Bitcoin because there has to be a differentiator because humans like different. We just do. If everything's the same, we lose our fucking minds. Like something as small as like you see your girlfriend and then there's a girl wearing the same dress as your girlfriend. And she's like, well, that fucking bitch. It's just chaos. Right. <laughs> or <laughs> or everybody like Walmart was blowing up. And then out of the blue, Target was like, no, nah, Walmart. And there's like almost no difference between the two. One's red and one's blue. But humans just like different for no real reason. I can't explain it. But where I'm getting at is that like I think the big governments have already realized they've lost. And so now they're just trying to create silos where they can at least watch the gate and have some sort of, what's the word I'm looking for? Relevance to the people that they govern. Well, you've got all these stable coins, USDC, I guess we'll call it Tether, one of them. What's the other one? There's USDC, there's Tether. USDT, there's, uh, there's DAI, there, there's all kinds uh, of stable coins. Not DAI, not, the, not it's the, the stable coins. It's the era of stable coins right now. So, the, I'm talking about the stable coins that are specifically backed by fiat currency. How that even works, I don't know. Somebody's making a lot of money, but they're creating these silos so they can attempt to have some sort of relevance uh, for the people that they govern. Right? Coinbase has it right up at the top. Hey, you should put USDC in your wallet. We'll give you 1.25% APR return. That's better than a savings account. It's actually a hell of a lot better than the savings account, but they're already trying to create this, like we can secure you when there's no security in that, what the hell's going on. And they know that. So I think they're trying to get ahead of the curve and create that, that feeling of security where Bitcoin's already probably won and is going to win, but then there will be a differentiator differentiator. There'll be those that use Bitcoin. Oh, you can be like them. And those that use cryptocurrencies and altcoins, Go ahead, be like them if you want to. Or you can use our nice, clean fiat cryptocurrency that gives you all these crazy random benefits that we regulated into existence because that's what we do. I think they've already realized that the volume for Bitcoin and all coins is going to grow. I'll, if you can, I call myself Negro Domus. You don't have to say that, but this is just something that we... <laughs> I don't think Bitcoin's, I think it's going to be 50-50 slowly over the years. It's most likely going to be Ether or something built on Ether that starts to compete with Bitcoin in the darknet markets. But, or sorry, Ethereum, not Ether. Um, but it's just, to me, I think the states have already realized that 
okay, this is obvious. No one's going to use our money over this other money that's censorship proof or censorship resistance. So now to the other part of your question, I have no fucking clue how to help you find hard, hard data about how people are using crypto on the dark markets. And you know what? I'm okay with not helping you there because I don't want to be on the menu, as you put it. So, oh, that's right in my wheelhouse. I, I love that idea. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not putting on my uh, uh, hazmat, my digital hazmat suit to hop into the dark net. I think it's it's risky for me. But that's very. Smart. I do have a question for you. Um, how does this intertwine to the quote unquote GPP? Uh, and what do you mean by that? As the general purpose person, like I. Like the, the what Corey was just talking about, like I get I get a litany of questions uh, from my friends and family all the time, and you know they're I've been talking to them about this for so long, and they've seen the price and they've seen the craze, and now they're interested, but you know they're they don't want to get involved and all that. How's that adoption work? Oh, right. this is actually probably where we should have started. So thanks for bringing it back around. So. Okay, I'm going to say something really counterintuitive, and I'm not meaning to sound like mean or callous here, but it doesn't matter. And I'll tell you why. It's really unintuitive, and it's the conversation that everybody's having, and I think it's the wrong conversation. Um, I was talking to a crypto OG uh, who's done everything, Roger Ver, the other day, and he was pushing back on me about this. And he, he brought up a good point that I'll, I'll mention later. But um, the reason that general adopt, like the general average person adoption doesn't matter, is that if governments do adopt crypto and they put any amount of their money into crypto, any amount of the reserve goes into crypto, what has just happened is that all of the money in the world, which is controlled by the people who have the monopoly on violence, has started to go into crypto. So I, I think that if this is happening, if crypto adoption by governments is happening, you don't need any general person using crypto for it to explode thousands of times in value. If governments are actually putting their reserves into crypto, and it seems that they are, and we're looking for hard data to really connect the dots, but if that's happening, that's the end game. It's That's how it ends. And the reason that I, I'm going to come back, Corey, to something that, that you uh, weren't so sure about, the, the game theory is, 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 I think, solid, but you know, pushback is welcome. If you think about an order book, right? If you're on an exchange, you're a buyer, you're a seller. Say that there's one seller and 10 buyers, right? So the seller basically has said, look, I'm willing to sell some Bitcoin. Well, in an order book, you have these things called mountains, right? Where, uh, you know, the more you buy, the worse price that you're buying for. That's just the way it works, supply and demand. And so when the first country buys Bitcoin, they're getting it actually for the cheapest price and they're hoarding it for the reasons that we mentioned. Then the second country who wants to trade with the first country, right, is also buying Bitcoin and they're hoarding it proactively. And so what's happening is there is this, there is this line of countries that have smaller and smaller incentives at first to be the first few to adopt crypto. But as more and more of the countries adopt crypto, the further you are in the line, the more you start to realize, oh, I am going to have to pay a higher price the longer I wait. And so the end game is this domino effect where once you hit this tipping point, I don't know what it is, I don't know how close we are to it, you watch first world countries basically racing to not adopt last. And that is a really important moment if it happens, because if it happens, basically every country is scrambling to both get 
crypto, but also any country that prevented its citizens from doing so is massively robbing its citizens and by extension robbing itself because that's where countries get their value from. They get it from their citizens. They just reallocate the treasure from their citizens to their control, usually for the greater good, building infrastructure, et cetera. But that's how it works, right? This is like a really simplified explanation. And so I think, I think that's why general adoption doesn't matter at all. I think it's 100% about this last group of country adoption. In terms of a single asset like Bitcoin, I'd say you're right. Um, you're going to see, I, I think you'll see something very similar to what you just described. Uh, another behavior of governments, at least the ones that are more powerful and relatively policing, is paying people to do things that they shouldn't be paying for. There, you might see an extended use of high, like highly secure or highly, highly private uh, cryptocurrencies. For instance, like I wanna, I wanna pay this faction to do this thing or, or fund this particular type of uh, behavior, but I can't be known to do it. Therefore, I'll buy the cryptocurrency, pay them in that. They'll figure it out from there. Um, but in terms of what you just described, that's really great for a single asset. And the and, and the end user, the regular, like the GPP, only benefits from that by buying now and waiting for that to happen. Um, what I do like about that scenario is that uh, they still have the option to participate in that economy um, as much as they'd like to. There's nobody that can keep them out of it. The, the level of inclusion with this type of cryptocurrency um, is so high that you can you you can not only can you benefit from the entrance and kind of uh, kind of capitalistic fighting of these large players, but you can also still participate on whatever level you want to. Uh, but like. I'm then curious to see where a lot of like the original ideology of cryptocurrency moves to if that becomes the playground for large governments to like transact and move money and hold power. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, here's here's the crazy thing about all this is that if you are <laughs> holding private keys, you have the same power as all the other participants in the network. You're sovereign. Right. You are a country, but you also have insane responsibility. Right. Like you have the same responsibility as a country and countries are always getting attacked. They have to defend. Right. And some countries are on the attack. Right. Aggressively looking to take others treasure. And so this is the reason actually why the GPP may not want to adopt crypto because it comes with a whole lot of responsibility mostly your own security, like you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. um, and the hackers out there are spectacular and the regulators out there are spectacular. You know, it's it's just too hard, I think, for the average human to crypto today. That may change, um, but it's real scary. If you understand what you're getting into, it's real scary to have any amount of crypto. I want to push back um, on that. I want to push back okay. on that a little bit. Um, the current stance of asymmetric cryptography is the last bastion of um, the advantage being on the defender, defender's side. It's the, it's like, I think in my opinion, the last thing we have or the advantage is on the defender's side. And because all of this is backed by digital signatures and private keys that you own, um, if, if that's done properly, which is a huge if, but 
we're working on that in terms of like the, the, the builders of the space. If that's done properly, then it's the most secure way to hold value. Uh, it's just oh, a matter oh, of like right. whether or not you can hold that stuff, right? Yeah, you're totally right. And you know what's really crazy is there was like some some decisions in the 90s about PGP that kind of like shaped all of this and made it all possible. And I always wonder like, did those people understand like what they were deciding when they decided to make cryptography, like applied cryptography and encryption legal? Because there was a there was a time where it wasn't really clear if encryption was going to be allowed. And uh, at the end of the day, it's my understanding based off you know publicly available textbooks that uh, you know the intelligence agencies just wanted it so that they could use it covertly, and the best way to do that was to you know make encryption available. In fact, I think it was I forget which branch of the U.S. military I think invented Tor, like the backbone of the darknet. And uh, man, the implications. I wonder if they imagine this today. You're right, Corey. Like, yeah, public key cryptography. It's amazing. And it totally allows you to have an insane amount of power. Like as an individual, um, I just don't know that the average person can understand or use that with the tools that we have today. You're right. And, that, and yeah. I think that's that's a like me and D have had multiple conversations. I have like a countless uh, kind of. Uh, positions on that d you can go ahead I mean, i'm not gonna i'm not gonna inundate you with all of them <laughs> no i just was gonna say when it comes to the regular people and just using you know basic cryptography i uh have a current client and they'll probably hear this eventually but it's just true at least 20 times a week i hear this conversation and it makes me want to scream because at least 25 times a week i give them solutions and it goes like this Hey, I need to log into that thing. All right, cool. What's the password? I don't know. I wrote it down somewhere. And I'm like, oh, here we go. This is going to be a two fucking hour endeavor. <laughs> All right. I can't find where I wrote it down. So should I just do the password recovery thing? Well, no, because then you're going to write it down again and lose that. Let's just find the notepad. It goes back and forth like that until they end up just recovering their password. Like extreme inefficiency like well here's the, a, like that's the problem right like we've created like, we've created a social construct where i offload my responsibility to someone else and i no longer need need to be responsible for the things that i hold sacred because i assume someone's going to fix it for me and that's not how this shit works and that's yeah, going to well, be a very yeah, big you, problem you know, moving forward we're getting into deep yeah. deep conversations that's that's just the way we've moved in society is what i what i say central things centralized right like who the fuck thinks about where that apple's coming from anymore? That is not my responsibility. My responsibility is to get my ass to the grocery store to get that apple. I don't give a right. shit how long it took to <laughs> grow. I don't I don't give a shit where that tree is. Yeah. I don't care about my own sustenance. I care about the gas prices to get to get to the grocery store, but I don't care about like and that's a basic responsibility. And so that's right. kind of like the natural way we've kind of built things um but it's uh, damn i had a really good question for you oh here it is it's back for me sorry you uh, you were gonna say something the oh question, no, i was just gonna I, I had a filler topic while you thought about it but since you got it let's do it okay the question is may do you have to go into the darknet to measure if nation states i guess uh, or governments are i guess at a minimum endorsing crypto 
when you have like more than enough evidence to show that institutional investment is growing, Coinbase, yeah. Gemini, Circle, um, GBTC is like GBTC's volume is like going through the roof. The futures volume is going through the roof now. It's getting exponential. So that may not be a government directly saying, "Hey, here's a hundred bucks, give me some Bitcoin," but that's at least a endorsement that the people inside of the country can engage with it in a derivative manner. Is that not enough evidence to show? So it, it depends on who you are. If you're the manager of a family office and it's your job to understand why this stuff is going up and you're not just wanting to bet on speculation and you're looking for exotic data that gives you some kind of clean, strong signal, then yeah, you gotta you gotta get in there and get your hands dirty, and you know that's what I want to know. I want I want I don't want to bet on speculation. I want to bet on adoption, because historically, betting on adoption and finding early indicators and looking at growth rate that's how you do it. I just don't know of any other way. So mm -hmm. I, I think I think you do have to uh, have to get your hands dirty. Can I can I bring up a weird topic that you guys inspired? It's a total mm -hmm. tangent. You can bring me back, but you know it's this idea of uh i'm sure you guys have heard of this simulation theory i'm very aware <laughs> yeah. of it i'm a, I'm a phd in yeah. physics so. <laughs> oh cool oh man we can probably go way further down the rabbit hole than i've ever thought of then well here's here's the basic idea right like in math you have these things called normal distributions they look like bell curves mm -hmm. um and basically you've got like the average person and then on the edges you have like you know the lowest performers and the highest performers and so, you know, th there's this question, right? So what if we are in simulation, right? Like if you just use that as a model, not saying that we necessarily do, but just use that as like a, a mental frame. Um, you've got players, people who are like in control and on a quest trying to like achieve something and you have non-player characters. And, you know, the, the closest thing that I found to figuring out which kind of person is which is their sensitivity to social cues and their desire for accountability. Like, how many people do you know that are like, I am responsible for my situation and I am going to steer my life in a way that I will get what I want no matter what comes in my way? Those players, to me, seem like they are the far right of the normal distribution of humanity. Where, like, most people, to your point, um, they just, look, I got, you know, I've been programmed. I got to go to the grocery store. I got to do the thing. I got to do, you know, whatever. If, if you believe that, the majority of people are non-player characters, not to belittle them, not to say anything, just, just really what I'm saying is that they are very sensitive to social cues and that they do not want the responsibility to determine the outcomes of their lives. What does that mean for crypto, right? Is there a way that if that's true, and I think a lot of us agree that that's probably intuitively true, then how do you, how do you have a giant explosion in crypto value with a very small number of players? And the case that I'm making is that what I am proposing I believe is both happening and it only requires a very small number of people to actually decide to hoard crypto for it to have an explosion in value. And so if you're trying to collect data, I like the idea of narrowing it down to a very small, bizarrely high value subset of people to track. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. Like I, if, if, if what you just said is true, if um, there are key players in this whole scenario, that uh, with their participation participation in crypto 
moves the price the most, how do you track that participation? And that's going to be through the darknet. That's that's a that's a very good place to go. There's there's almost only two places it can go. One is through well regulated exchanges, which is probably not what's going to happen, and the darknet because. The darknet is built to be censorship resistant and private so that you can't track what's going on. And if, if history tells, tells the story correctly, why the hell wouldn't they use the darknet? The problem with that is finding really good data. Uh, and the more you can do that, the more insight you can have. And the more insight you can have, the better you can make decisions on where to put that money. But I, I, wanna, I wanna say you're right in terms of like, this is a good thing to track and the implications of people moving into it uh, are are drastic, whereas everything else is kind of just following in a lot of ways. Hmm. I was hoping you guys would disagree with me. Well, I, I there's no disagreement I here. Like it's like so DeFi. If you want to go into that route, right? DeFi is this new. I want to call it Meta of the cryptocurrency space in terms of we're rebuilding the financial industry. And if you look at to like the sheer amounts of um, financial volume that goes through traditional finance and the potential for a better technology to do it all better and more, that's a tremendous amount of potential and value. But that's not happening in Bitcoin in any way, shape, or form. And... The technology moves so fast, it's hard to say that what's currently happening is going to explode. More along the lines of we're going to keep iterating until we find something that works really fucking well, and then that will explode. I don't think we're there yet. And so what you're doing is you're looking at you're looking at people who need something now, they have a use case, and they need to do it. And there's no better technology than the one that's more tried and true. Whereas... I think DeFi is looking for a much more bleeding edge technology that suits um, what they're trying to do better or like they're looking for the right um, solidified or ossified technology that can't change to then dive into it. Until you see that, it's not going to make that explosion. But when that happens, it will be it will be huge. Hmm. Yeah, I, I have some thoughts on DeFi if, if you guys are uh, receptive to that conversation. Yeah. I First of all, like huge shout out to uh, all of the legit experiments in crypto. Uh, I think Ethereum is one of the most amazing and definitely legit experiments happening. Um, like truly an, an amazing project. I, I think that um, what DeFi is currently looking for is an inelastic market. So right now there's high elasticity, meaning there's like a lot of seasonality to DeFi, right? I track DeFi at a very intense level and we look for growth rates in the amount of Ethereum being locked up. And what I found for the most part is that people are using DeFi for leveraged long positions on Ether. That is the, the primary use case that we've observed. Um, and there's so much seasonality uh, in terms of how much gets locked up based on the price. And so if, if we can find a market that is uniquely served by DeFi, where that, that market has no seasonality, I think DeFi like will make a ton of sense. So like with the darknet, the reason I love studying the darknet is there's no seasonality. It's completely inelastic. The demand is always there and it appears to be growing. And if you think about this idea that is popularized by this amazing venture capital firm called Andreessen Horowitz, they say the internet is eating everything. 
And so if the internet is eating the black market, that is the dark net. The dark net today is this little tiny sliver of a thing compared to the black market, right? Uh, DeFi is this little tiny sliver of a thing compared to finance. The, the question is how elastic are the markets that DeFi is eating so that it can sequence from a small market to a bigger market to a bigger market until it's eaten all of the contracts in the world, which if it can, I mean, you're talking about all those contracts are worth something like a quarter of a quadrillion dollars. The mm. number doesn't even make sense. But it's, I, I think it's a lot. <laughs> really well said. It's a lot. Um, but the question is, like, where is the market that has that inelastic demand? And I, I haven't found it. I'm looking. I would love to find it. If anyone has thoughts on that, hit me up because I'm looking. It's not there yet, in my opinion. It's just not there yet. We're not, we're not to the level of security that we need um, to give the guarantees associated with um, building all the layers of leverage on top, right? Like you Wait. can't you can't build those markets unless you have a very, very solid foundation. And the foundation just isn't solid enough based on what's being built around it and just what everyone knows about the most robust piece of it, which is mostly like Ethereum and, and DAI. How are you qualifying the inelasticity? Like is it so so if you look at the growth rate, which is like the the most specific signal that early stage technology investors look at to determine potential, really how hungry is the market for this pro like solution? Uh, mm -hmm. You're looking for consistent growth rates. If you look at DeFi, whether you're looking at the amount of Ethereum or the dollar value, either one, it, it doesn't go up. It grows and shrinks and grows and shrinks. It's breathing. What you're looking for is consistent upward growth, right? And so what you see is huge seasonality. So uh, Maker is by far like the largest project inside of DeFi. And it's just got this huge in and out based primarily on the price of Ethereum. And what you really want is you want consistent growth based on something where there is always demand. If there's like a part of human nature that just needs this. Okay, that's what I was I was getting. At. I was thinking like an inelastic good or service. That's what I was thinking you were meaning. I was trying to. Yeah, here's the problem with, with with uh, depending upon price of ether since it's so tied to the price of ether there's so much uncertainty around the ethereum technology that it's hard to understand oh you know but you call it you know the uncertainty can be attributed to a lot of factors but it exists and there's a lot of changes that need to happen that are untested and un, un like like uh battle tested in a lot of ways and because of that, I don't think you're going to find you're not going to find that rock solid foundation for something to build on top of it to provide what you're looking for to to not have that seasonality. For so until you have something that can be built on a more rock solid foundation, or the thing that it's built on becomes more rock solid, you're not going to have that like crazy monotonic exponential takeoff. Mm. This, so, so this is going to sound silly, but has anybody ever put like a Pareto graph on like the address, the distribution of who's like which addresses are hoarding the most Bitcoin? See, Ooh, like that's interesting. I would imagine that people have done that. All the data is public. Um, I mean, obviously, Satoshi's got a few coins uh, and, <laughs> yeah. you know, some of the like some of the Satoshi's plus one have a few coins. Um, but I, I would imagine that uh, it probably looks like a long tail distribution, right, where 
Yeah. Satoshi, number one, has got the giantest collection, whether it's publicly or not known. And then like it kind of goes down a little bit for number two and down some more for number three. And then eventually it just tapers off until, you know, it's like the rest of us are just, you know, we've got sat dust. Yeah. So I did a so lot of I, I did a lot of distribution analysis in the early Ethereum days during all the ICOs to see like like well, like during that during that time period, the the narrative of ICOs was like, we're so inclusive, it's so fair, it's so like there's so much equality going on, it's ridiculous. And I was like, well, probably not. Let's look at the numbers. And I, I did a lot of distribution analysis of all the ICOs, and without fail, every single one of them was like, there's like, you know, 0.1 to 1% holding the very vast majority of all these coins, and then a long tail distribution of everyone else. And I did it in terms of like orders of magnitude holdings. And, and there, there, I don't think we're ever going to come into a position where any of these any of these markets don't look like that they're they're better i'd say than traditional markets um and the access is much more inclusive in terms of like you can participate you can do these things you can actually use the currency without having to have some threshold of number uh but if we have to do like a power distribution uh, and if there's any governance associated with that power distribution it's in the hands of very few and I don't yeah, know how to like, right. I, don't, I don't know how that's going to change. And so what you're doing in a lot of ways, like to bring it back is trying to watch the people with all the power, yeah. at least whatever yeah, key indicators watching. they're going to give. Yeah, we're, we're fixated on the head of the long tail. I, I like this idea of like thinking about your mental compute as like, imagine you have a cup, right? And that cup only has like so much brain juice that you can have. And every time you think about something, you're pouring out some, some of that precious brain juice, right? I feel that so way. Like, <laughs> if, you, if you only have so much brain juice, what do you pour it at? And I think, it's, I think you want to look at the heads of the long tails. I think the heads tell you way more than the tail does. And your thesis mm. is that the dark net is those heads. It's, it's like the, the best yeah. place to find the best metrics for those heads is on the dark net. Yes. With, when the second place isn't even close. All right. So is there... Go ahead, Go ahead, Corey. I was going to say, is there like a tangential way to get to the, what if you started with the end in frame? Like I'm trying to answer this and then you create some sort of software that guides behavior on the dark net, dark net that can kind of uh, elucidate like exactly the behavior you're trying to. I think you guys are trying to understand what I'm saying. I, I, it's, a <laughs> yeah. long day, it's a long day of work, but you say like, hey, yeah. here's my question let's create an app on the dark net. And if people start using the app like this, this, and this, then I could say within 97% certainty that yes, that question is answered. Yes or no. Like yeah. is that a good place to start. I don't know. Yeah. Dimitri, is it okay to call you D? Yeah. That's what everyone calls me anyways. So yeah, it's like, that's actually like really um, like unusually like intuitive, like insight. So here's what I think is going to happen to your, to your question. We are at like the very, very beginning of this next crypto phenomenon, which is unstoppable websites. Like we're, we're at the very, very beginning of URLs, addresses not being centralized, right? Yeah. There's a, an amazing project that my group is paying a lot of attention to called Handshake, which is like, in, in my opinion, the first like really crazy, legitimate, has very high chance of working approach to making 
domains that is not controlled by a centralized authority. And we this are is very familiar deal. with with Handshake and the mm-hmm. people involved. A- amazing project. And then and then you look at you know this group that years ago created IPFS. Uh, you know, in a planetary file system, so cool. Uh, and then they they went on to create Filecoin, and Filecoin is probably the most thoughtful approach to creating unstoppable file storage that can serve websites. Not not just like it can maybe hold some text, but it can probably host an unstoppable website. And so when you put these things together, we don't know what's going to happen, but everyday people will be able to go to websites that no one can shut down using normal web addresses without crazy software. And what whatever browser becomes the head of the long tail that, that like lets people go to all of these places, that browser is probably going to have some pretty crazy information, if you know people are into that, about like where people are going on the dark net. You know, there's there's an early version of Google. Uh, you know, Google downloads the internet and makes it searchable. This thing, Dark Owl, you know, it's, uh, it's a little bit of an expensive service. Um, they they download the darknet and make it navigable, right? Um, so there's like ways to look at it today. But as the internet becomes truly like censorship resistant, there will probably be applications on top of this that just have a very unique view into how people are actually using the darknet. And when I say the darknet, I just mean like websites that someone might not agree with, that some person with power may be trying to shut down but can't. And so whoever those people are, like th- that are creating the browser that everyone uses that can go to any website, regardless of whether a government likes it or doesn't, man, that's going to be a fascinating set of data to have. Mm. Assuming they take it. Um, that's a that's a huge point in a lot of this. I don't see something being created that does all of these things that won't be open source. And if it is open source, I don't see people using it if it's tracking them. Um, This is coming from a company that builds software that does these things. Uh, It's going to be very difficult to build something that actually takes any meaningful data uh, from any users uh, as this privacy technology gets better and better and better. I feel like we've taken a lot of your time. Uh, how, yeah. do we, how, do we, how do we wrap this up? Like, where do people find out more about you? Where do people go to learn more? How do they get in touch? Yeah, so um, at the thousand x dot report one zero 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 x dot report, I basically tell people how to do everything that I do. Uh, my basic idea is like I can give away the thesis for free, and I think we're all better off if we just pull resources and build tools that we can all use. So that's kind of my pitch for the thousand x group is. Take what I know. I'll tell you how to do everything I do. You can do it yourself if you're willing to do a bunch of work. If you believe that we're right, and I think we are, uh, and you're lazy, and you realize that it's probably a lot cheaper to just, you know, subscribe to our service, uh, then join us. Otherwise, I hope you find value in this conversation. I hope you find value in, um, you know, I was just telling you how we track stuff. Uh, Yeah, I'm also on Twitter, at Cedric Makes. I make YouTube videos every sometimes. And uh, yeah. Please be careful. If you do go onto the darknet, remember you're on the menu. Never do anything illegal. <laughs> Don't upset the men with guns or the men with malware. They're both very powerful. Okay. Let's. Uh, Thank let's, you very much. Let's do this again. Let's do this regularly. Whenever you want. Just I call me love, up anytime. I would love to have you and Yaya on the same call and just listen to that conversation. Um, like you know who Yaya is. I, I don't know. But anyways, one last question. <laughs> 
In 10 words or less, can you describe Bitcoin? Bitcoin. That's the noise we like to hear. <laughs> uh, bit, you know what? It's the first fair money we've ever had. That's six words. People are gotten so much better at that. It's, there's just so much. They're tremendously better at answering that question. God, when we first started that answering that question, we've asked everyone. And we, we even made a book uh, that like combined all of, all of the answers. Yeah, I'm just, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, it's funny. And I don't know, 80% of the people just fucking blew it. Just blew right past 10 words. And it's... Mm-hmm. And now people like it's just like it's 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 obvious. Like I I like that transition of I don't know how to explain this. I want to give my perspective to. It's clearly this. Like it's it's like the narrative around what Bitcoin is, has gotten so much better over the past five years or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's hard, man. Like, you know, th- there are no crypto experts because it's too wide and too deep. And so, like. Even just a simple question like that. I mean, I've been thinking about that question for like 10-ish years. And it, it's still a struggle fest. Yeah, it is most definitely. But you did a good job. I mean, that's, that's like Corey said, it usually people go off the deep end. Or at least back when we first started, <laughs> they were like going all over the place. And we were like 10, ten words, just just 10, just 10. But um, Cedric, it's been a, an amazing conversation um you are welcome back anytime this stuff is fascinating um it's very fascinating actually i just i can't i can't get on the dark net i'm a i'm a i'm a bitch i don't know what to tell you oh, no, no. you're being you're being very smart like you really you're better off not going out of the dark net yeah it's you're very smart to do that i would suggest that no one go onto the dark net cedric's got a guy it's fine yeah but actually <laughs> <laughs> thank All you right. man.